0: Good morning to all of those of you uh, who are uh, here, and also those tuning in uh, from our chapel and galleria, and uh, those of you also who are tuning in from our Northwest Regional Center, our regional down in Bridgeland, our network of uh, home churches, and others uh, coming and viewing in from uh, different venues in the province. I'm wondering if you have ever had someone in your life that you've respected so much that you dreaded the prospect of disappointing them. You dreaded the prospect of letting them down. Over the years, I have had um, several such individuals in my life who not only lived exemplary lives, but, but they also made me feel so special and important to them that I just wanted to honor them in return I just wanted to please them in return when you love and you respect someone it's very natural to want to honor them and to do your best for them on the other hand when a relationship is characterized by cynicism or apathy um, or disgust you just know that that something is wrong something is broken in that relationship I'm reminded of a couple who Who didn't like each other very much and uh, they were out for a drive one day uh, when they were pulled over by a policeman and the man rolls down his window and he says what's the problem officer and the officer informs him that he was doing at least 80 in a 50 kilometer zone and the man reacts and says sir that can't be I mean I wasn't going a kilometer over 60 and the man's wife kind of looks over at him bit disgusted and says oh come on Harry you are doing 80 I saw it with my own eyes and Harry gives her a dirty look and he hisses be quiet Bertha the police officer says, sir you know I also have to tell you that I've got to give you a special ticket for the broken taillight and again Harry says I didn't know I had a broken taillight Bertha looks over at him and says Harry I've been bugging you for the last month to get that taillight broken, that uh, fixed. And he turns to her and he says, Watch your mouth, Bertha. Well, the police officer says, I'm also going to have to give you a citation for not wearing your seatbelt. And Harry says, but, but, sir, he says, I just took it off as you were walking up to the car. Bertha looks over at Harry and says, Harry, you never wear your seatbelt and now he's losing it and he turns over to her and he says shut your mouth Bertha well the officer turns to Bertha and he says ma'am does your husband talk disrespectfully like this to you all the time and Bertha says no sir officer he only talks this way when he's drunk You get the sense you didn't like him very much? (laughs) But you see, folks, when you love someone, you don't talk to each other this way. No, you treat them with honor and with respect. Now, I bring that to your attention because, as we're going to see in a moment, in the days of Malachi, the people had a very unhealthy attitude toward God. There was a, a cynicism in their attitude toward God and they dishonored him in the way that they were living their lives now the prophet Malachi lived at at the time of Nehemiah and both of these men ministered um, at the end of the Old Testament era of the Jewish people as we understand it and so if we want to get a little historical background um, of the events that led up to the book of Malachi we actually have to read the latter portion of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 10 to 13, which chronicles sort of the the, the final events of the Old Testament history of the Jewish people. So I'm going to invite you to first of all turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah uh, for a moment. probably open it to about chapter 8. Now you may recall when King Cyrus issued a decree permitting the Jews to return to Jerusalem after they had spent approximately 70 years in captivity in Babylon, several groups of Jews took Cyrus up on his offer. The first group, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, left within a short period of time and they headed for Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they found their beloved city and their temple in total ruin. And so they devoted... A lot of their attention to rebuilding their temple. Another group returned to Jerusalem about 100 years later in 458 BC under the leadership of Ezra. And then a third group uh, returned under the leadership of Nehemiah about 25 years later in 430 BC, and they returned primarily with the mandate of rebuilding the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Now, after the wall was rebuilt, we read in Nehemiah chapter 8, and you see it right in the heading of your scripture, that Ezra read the law to the prophets, uh, to the people, the law of God. And upon hearing it, they fell prostrate on their faces in repentance and in worship of their God. And then if you flip over to chapter 10, we read that they made a number of promises to God. Including in verse 30, they promised not to allow their children to intermarry with people who worshipped other gods. In verse 32, they promised to give regular offerings to the Lord. In verse 35, they promised to bring the first fruits of their crops to the Lord, the best of their crops to the Lord as a reminder that all that they have is from him. Now turn over to chapter 13. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but when Nehemiah returned, he had gone back to Babylon for a period of time. When he returned, after a number of years of being away, he was absolutely incensed to discover that his people who had made these promises to God were already defaulting on those promises. They were already back to their old ways. They were already indifferent to God. They were cynical toward God. They were dishonoring God. They were not keeping the commands of God. They had no respect for the covenant of marriage. They were coming up with all kinds of uh, uh, flippant excuses to divorce their spouse because they believed that, you know, someone else could make them happier. And so they just flippantly divorced their spouse for almost any reason so they could be with someone else. On top of that, they were greedy. They were robbing God of the tithe and giving God that which didn't cost them anything. And it is during this period of time that God calls Malachi to express his concerns to the people. So now I invite you to turn over to the book of Malachi which you should have no problem finding because it is the last book in the Old Testament. Yes, we finally made it to the end. I expect thunderous applause. Yep. <laughs> if if for no other reason you live through it, you know. Absolutely. Okay, so would you stand with me as we read a portion of chapter 1 uh, together. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I love Jacob, but Esau I have hated. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Let us pray our Heavenly Father we again want to thank you uh, for that which you spoke to the prophets and also that which you spoke through the prophets and Lord as we look at the content of the book of Malachi we see Lord uh, a message that is very direct and very hard and Lord as much as it was attended for, intended for the people of that day We recognize it's intended for us as well. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds to your truth, and then, Lord, you give us the courage to do what you're asking us to do. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. may be seated. Now, in verse 1, Malachi starts out, by affirming God's love for his people. He essentially says, God loves you, and God has your very best interest at heart. And the people respond cynically, and they say, oh yeah? So how does God love us? Have you ever questioned the love of God? Have you ever faced circumstances in your life where you wondered whether God really loves you or not? Well, this is exactly what the people of that day were feeling. And and they they, they just sensed or felt that they weren't getting from God what they were expecting from a loving God. They were thinking things like, if God loves me, then why did our crop fail? If God loves me, then why are the wheels coming off my life? Or why did this special relationship unravel? If God really loved me, I would think that I would be experiencing the good life. And so beginning verse 2, God reminds them of his faithful love down through the centuries by giving them a history lesson. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I love Jacob, but Esau I have hated Now that is a very difficult passage to understand, but we need to understand or realize that the people of that day, they knew what was being said there. The question is, what did God mean when he said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? We know that God loves everyone. I mean, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. That covers everybody. God so loved the world so we know he didn't hate Esau in the way that we normally think of hating someone the word hate that's being used here is being used as a word of contrast it's the same word that Jesus used when he said in Luke chapter 14 he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we know that Jesus didn't mean that we're to hate our parents or our siblings or our children because there are many other scriptures in which he clearly articulated that we're to love our parents and honor our parents and our spouse and and our children. What Jesus meant here is is that following him involves choosing to love him more than anyone else. The contrast has to almost be like love and hate, but the emphasis is on the love. Choosing not to let our love for others compromise or weaken or water down our love and commitment to God And so with that in mind, what God's saying here is when he said, uh, what, what is he saying here when he said he loved Jacob? He was taking them back to the covenant that he made with their forefather Abraham. In order to accomplish his mission of bringing all people back in right relationship with himself, which has been the theme through the entire Old Testament narrative, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his representatives in the world, to declare to the world through their life and through their words that their God is God. Now make no mistake, God could have chosen anyone to be his representative, but he chose Abraham, and then later he chose Abraham's descendant, Jacob, over his brother Esau, not because he loved Jacob more, not because Jacob was better looking or more intellectually astute or because he was morally better. No, God simply chose him, which is his prerogative to do as God. But let me quickly add, he chose him for a purpose. In Genesis 12, 3, he told Abraham that all people on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. God chose Abraham, and then later he chose Jacob, whom he renamed Israel, and he chose the descendants of Jacob, Israel, the children of Israel, to be his missionaries to the world. Now the problem is, is that even though the Jewish people were quite excited about the fact that they were God's chosen people, far too often they forgot that they were chosen to fulfill a purpose. And they drifted from God. They broke their covenant with God. And so, in the fullness of time, God put the Jews on hold, as it were. And He chose rep- uh, as His chosen representatives in the world. He didn't break his covenant with them. He, he didn't write them off. He just said, I'm going to raise up a new branch, another branch, a new people to point people to me. And he chose his son Jesus to come and reveal his reality to the world. And he chose Christ's body, the church, to be his representatives in the world and so when you read in the Bible that God has chosen or God has elected certain people those verses aren't saying that God chose some people to be eternally saved and he chose other people to be eternally condemned because I remind you in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 9 it says God is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance that's his heart no he's saying that he has chosen a certain person or a certain nation like the Jewish nation or us his children the church for a purpose and that purpose is to bless our world with the good news of his love and so keeping all of that imagery And all of that explanation in mind, and I'm sorry I had to go around the barn in order to give you that background, but if you can keep all of that imagery and explanation in mind, I'm now going to try to summarize what I believe God is saying in the first five verses of Malachi in today's vernacular. God is essentially saying to the people of that day, ever since I chose your father Abraham, and your father Jacob now named Israel to be my representatives in the world I have stood firm with you I have protected you remember the Assyrians and how frightened you were of them well where are they now remember the Babylonians remember how invincible they seemed to you well where are they now Or where are the Medes and the Persians? You see, they have all come and gone. But you, my chosen people, remain and continue to thrive. Even though you repeatedly broke faith with the covenant that we made and you drifted from me, I have constantly demonstrated my love for you. Yes, at times I had to use a tough love to wake you up to your folly. But I've always loved you. I have always been there, ready and willing to embrace you and welcome you back into my arms when you came to the end of yourself and you reached out to me. When I chose you, you were locked into my eternal purpose. And even though there have been times I've had to discipline you, I've never deserted you. And my steadfast love has been there all along down through time. And folks, that is what God essentially said to the people of that day in those first five verses. And just for the, for the record, what God said to them, He says to you and He says to me. He says to us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you or forsake you. I stand with you. My love is there for you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that, but also don't ever take it for granted, because I want you to look down at verse 6 now. God raises the issue of honor, and he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? In the Hebrew word, the the word honor means to be heavy. And so when you honor someone, it means you treat them as a heavyweight in your life. Someone of high value. Someone who has great significance in your life. And you see, God is revealing his broken heart here because even though, as he's just said, Down through the years, I have faithfully loved you. You do not honor me in return. Instead, you are cynical. You are ungrateful. You are apathetic. You're even angry with me. And so through the rest of the book, Malachi points out a number of ways that the people of his day weren't honoring their Lord. One of them is found in verse 6, where God says, You show contempt for my name. And again, the people say, Oh, really? So how are we showing contempt for your name? And in verse 8, God answers them, and he essentially says, You are content to give me stuff that costs you nothing the trash, the useless things. Let me back up for a moment, take you back to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, God specifically spelled out that when a person brought a lamb or a bull or a sheep to be sacrificed as a sin offering, the animal was to be without defect it was to be the best in the herd it was to be the animal that would fetch the highest price in the marketplace it was to cost a person something in part to communicate a person's deep love for God but also to help a person to realize in a very tangible way that sin is costly and that repentance is costly as well The sacrificial offering of that day also served as a foreshadow of the day when God himself would give us his very best, his one and only son, whom the Apostle John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet instead of looking for the best sheep in his herd, the people in Malachi's day They would walk through their herd and they would look for the one that was kind of leaning up against the post. They'd look for the sheep that was kind of staggering around on his last legs, ready to keel over and die, you know, either from disease or old age. And they'd say, that's the one. He's almost dead. He's worthless to me anyways. Let's offer him to God. And Malachi says, when you do that, you have no idea how much you're grieving the Lord because he sees your heart. He knows your motivation. You're giving him your leftovers. You're giving him what you don't want. In verse 8, he says, tell me, would you give a leftover gift to the governor? Would you give it to anyone who really mattered to you? It's quite a thought, isn't it? I mean, what do we usually do with used stuff that has become useless to us? I mean, do we wrap it up and give it away as Christmas and birthday gifts to people we love? Well, I'm sure there are some people who do that. And let me just say that if you do that because it's the best of what you have, then God bless you for it. Because your heart is right. You're giving the best of what you have. But you see, most of us in our rather prosperous society, we don't give our used and useless stuff to others as a gift. No, we either give it away or we try to sell it, you know, for five cents in the garage sale. We don't give it as a gift because deep down inside, we know that when you love someone, you give him or her your very best. You don't give them something that costs you nothing. And if you do give them something that costs you nothing, what's that saying about the depth of your love for them? Now, you see, we understand that in terms of our relationships, but do we understand that in terms of what we give to our Lord? I mean, he knows exactly what we're thinking. He knows exactly why we give. Does he get our best? Does he get our first fruits? Or does he get our leftovers? And, and if he gets our leftovers, what does that say about the depth of our love for him? Honoring God means bringing him your very best rather than a tainted sacrifice of leftovers. Jim Nicodem lays out some ways that we give tainted sacrifices. I've added and expanded on some of his. But here is some ways that we sometimes give less than our best. A tainted sacrifice, he says, is when I spend an hour or two reading a magazine cover to cover or surfing on the net or watching television but then just five minutes before I'm ready to fall asleep I reach over and pull out the scriptures and read God's Word. Attained tainted sacrifice is when we give our best energy our best talent and motivation and creativity and time to things other than the purposes of God. And when it comes to serving the Lord, we either sit on the sidelines or we look for something that requires the least amount of engagement that will mess up our schedule the least. That's offering God the leftovers. A tainted sacrifice is when we watch our favorite golfer sink a game-winning putt. Or our favorite sports team win the game in overtime. And we leap off the couch in jubilation and loud praise and with much dancing. But when we gather together with God's people to worship our majestic and holy and awesome God and we thank him for the lives that he's changed and for sustaining our lives so often we just yawn and we sit on our hands and we dare not get too emotional a sacrifices sacrifice is when we'll leave work early We'll risk life and limb driving on wintry roads. We'll pay $20 to park our car. We'll walk several blocks in the freezing cold. We'll pay another $20 for a bad hamburger and a Coke. And then we'll pay another $100 for a ticket. And then we will sit for three hours at the edge of our seat to see our favorite sports team play. And yet when we come to church, we get really upset if we've got to walk further than half a block. If the service is longer than 75 minutes, if we sing too much, stand too long, or if the preacher speaks on money or giving God our very best. A tainted sacrifice is when we love our kids so much that there's nothing we wouldn't do for them. No experience we would want them not to have. Nothing we wouldn't give them or sacrifice for them, but if we're honest, our heart doesn't beat nearly that fast for our Lord and the things of our Lord. Attainted sacrifice is when we will agonize about letting others down. We'll agonize about offending others or not giving our best to others, but not give second thought that we may have offended God or grieved our God by giving him our leftover time, by giving him our leftover energy, our leftover love. Attainted sacrifice is when we spend a lot of money on ourselves. But when it comes to giving God an offering, we give him the change in our pockets or our walking around money. Malachi says to the people of his day, You're not giving from your heart, you're going through the motions, you're giving out of a sense of obligation, and you're giving what doesn't cost you anything. And God says in verse 10, when you give with that kind of a spirit, I just wish that you would close the door of the temple doors and not even bother giving it all because if your heart isn't in it, if it doesn't cost you something, if I don't mean more to you than that, then your offering means nothing to me. Brian Clark says, the reality is the cost of the gift is what makes worship authentic. When I give God what I don't need, when I give God a little of what's left over, even if I tithe, but it's really not costing me anything, it's, I don't even feel it, because God's given me so much more. If what I give to God doesn't cost me anything, then there's no true worship in what I'm doing. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, King David is, is wanting to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And so he's looking for a piece of ground in which to set up this sacrifice. He finally finds the piece of land that he wants to do the sacrifice on, and he talks to the owner. He's prepared to pay for it. The owner says, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'll just give you this lamb. And David refuses. He insists on paying for it, and he then says this, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. You see, a sacrifice costs us something. It affects our lifestyle. Many of you have been generous people for many years. Many of you have given 10% or more of your income back to the Lord for 10 years, 20, 30 or more years. And you've done that in order to see His kingdom purposes advance. And as the scriptures teach, you've done it cheerfully, you've done it regularly, you've done it in proportion to your income. On top of that, you've given thousands of hours of your time and of your abilities and your gifts out of your love for God. And God has used your faithfulness. God has used our faithfulness collectively to see the trajectory of thousands of people changed for all of eternity. But you see, loving God, living for God, worshiping God has cost you something. It has cost you all kinds of time that you could have devoted, playing endless sports, pursuing hobbies, getting your kids involved in even more activities, vacationing here or there. It's cost you some of that because you had to make a choice between the good and the best. And it's also cost you all kinds of money. I mean, if if you were to add up all that you've given away to the Lord's work and to to the needy over the years, and if you had decided not to give that money away and to keep it, if you just do the math on it, you could have had a lot more money to drive a much nicer car, to have a larger home, to take wonderful vacations. Even perhaps to outright pay for a vacation home in some sunny destination in the south. You see, true worship is costly. But you see, it's the only kind of worship that God wants from us. Again, in verse 10, God says, Don't even bother giving if it doesn't come from your heart. See, God is essentially reminding us here that he doesn't have a cash flow problem. He doesn't need our money. He owns it all. He owns everything that I have. My money, my possessions, my family, my very life. He owns it all. The only reason he wants me to give back to him is so that I will never forget that everything I have is from him. Every time I give of my time, it's a reminder that my life is dependent on Him, His grace. My life is in His hands. Every time I give of my money, it's a reminder that He owns it all and that without Him, I wouldn't even have the capacity to make money. But He doesn't need our money. All He wants is our heart. And what we do with our money, what we do with our time, says a lot about the state of our heart. God's essentially saying, if you love your stuff that much that you can't give it to me cheerfully, then obviously your stuff is the God that you love and serve. And God's saying, I would just prefer that you be honest about that. And stop pretending that I'm your God because I'm not. That stuff is your God. God says, I don't want your second best. I don't want your leftovers. I don't want 50% of your commitment. I don't even want 90% of your commitment. I want all of you. And so, folks, I make no apologies when I challenge each and every one of us to give God our best. I challenge you not to rob God as Malachi talks about in chapter 3. I'm aware that the New Testament doesn't specifically teach the principle of the tithe. What it teaches is that God wants us to be willing to surrender all that we have to Him, not just 10% to Him. And that we are to give in proportion to our income, which means we're free to give much more than ten percent. In fact, we should be giving a lot more than ten percent if God's given us the capacity. He wants our all. He wants to stop all the excuses, all the rationalizing that we do, and to give him, to stop giving him the leftovers and to start living like we mean it. You know, speaking on passages like this is very hard for me. I want you to be clear that I take no delight in in giving messages like this. It's hard on me because inevitably I get all kinds of emails and letters that do not flatter but hurt. But you know, if you turn over to Malachi chapter 2, God had a very stern message for the priests of that day. There were two things that the priests were not doing. First of all, they were not teaching the truth. And they were responsible for leading those people astray because they were teaching them what the people wanted to hear. They were entertaining them, but they weren't teaching the truth. And the second thing is they weren't living the truth. They were just in all of this for themselves. They were just concerned about themselves. And remaining popular with the people. Now, I'll confess to you, I'm I'm human. And I do not always practice what I preach. I do not always give God my very best. I do not always make God-honoring decisions in my life. And I'm sure you know that, but just in case you didn't, now you do. And when it comes to this role that God's given to me to teach and to preach His Word, I'm sure that I have not always accurately reflected God's intended Spirit or His intended meaning in my exposition and also in the interpretation of Scripture, particularly in those passages that lend themselves to different interpretations. I'm human. I'm capable of being wrong. But I want you to know that I take God's call in my life very seriously. The responsibility that he has given me to preach and to teach his word weighs heavy on my heart. And as much as I do not relish biting emails and letters, as much as it hurts to know that there are people who have and will continue to walk out of this place because they do not like the truth, they don't want to hear the truth, and I take no delight in that. When I stand before my holy God, I want to be able to say to him, I was faithful. What I don't want is to do what we read about in chapter 2, what the priest did. And that is just to tickle the ears of people to entertain them So they'll keep coming to teach and to preach what people want to hear rather than the truth. Because, folks, I'm just not going to buy into that. Because Jesus called us in Matthew 28 to make disciples, not to attract a crowd. And I'm just not going to compromise on that. Now, I share that with you because I want you to understand my heart. And I'm going to wrap up now by getting really practical and really personal. Over the last few years, I've noticed a a growing number of Christian writers and thinkers attacking the church like never before. Not Center Street specifically, but the church generally as we know it. And, And some of the attacks are warranted but one of the messages that's being conveyed is this idea that the church what the church is doing or many of the things that the church is doing isn't necessary that the church is spending too much of its money on itself And that a much larger percentage of its budget should be directed at those who are in poverty in our city, our nation, and around the world. And in principle, I agree with that. You need to know that nothing would make me happier than to have even a larger portion of our budget going to missionary endeavors overseas and to meeting the needs of the less fortunate here at home and around the world. This past year, we gave away nearly $2 million to help over 30 local, national, and international agencies working with the, with the less fortunate and those who are in crisis. We supported over 20 missionaries and 29 partner churches in seven countries of the world, all in their quest to meet the needs of the people in their community and to love them with the love of Jesus. In addition, we gave hundreds of thousands of dollars toward disaster relief, toward building schools for orphans in Africa, a shelter for abused women in India, and a church building in Mexico. We get hundreds of hundreds of requests from people, from agencies, and from specific individuals here in Calgary and also from churches and agencies and missionaries around the world asking for our financial support and for our prayers. And I've got to tell you, we would be thrilled if it were possible that we had the resources to, to stand behind all of them. So yes, I dream of a day when we're able to give most of what we receive in offerings away to God's activity outside of our local church ministry. I really do. But at the same time, I believe in and I am passionate about the vision and the mission that God has called us to as a church here in Calgary. This past year, God used the ministry of our church to see over 400 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the people that we're aware of. We have small groups and house churches all over our city who are praying together of how they can demonstrate the love of Jesus to people in their sphere of influence and in their community. We have an amazing redemptive ministry to hundreds of families with children and with youth with special needs. Just a few weeks ago, I heard the powerful testimony of well over 20 people who have found freedom in Jesus Christ from their addictions and from their fears. Our young adults are handing out food and ministering to people all over our city and we're seeing many people come to Christ through that ministry. That's just scratching on the surface of what all all that God's doing here at Central Campus and at our regionals. And when I read these critics who say that the church is missing it, I want to say, I want to at least ask, okay, you tell me what we should shut down. You tell those who are finding freedom in Christ through our freedom ministry that that ministry doesn't matter anymore. You you tell the families and those leading our special needs ministry that their ministry isn't important anymore. You tell uh, the people involved in our ministry to children and to youth and men and women and all the other ministries, you tell them their ministry doesn't matter anymore. You tell the nearly 90 or so international partner churches and agencies and missionaries who are receiving prayer and financial support through our church. Sorry, you're on your own. You see, I'm all for doing more for world poverty and justice. But I don't believe it has to be at the expense of shutting down most everything that God has called us to right here in Calgary. Now, let me give the rationale behind that see, a while back, I was reading a fascinating article by Sylvia and John Ronsvell. The Ronsvelles point out that the average person in the United States, it's an American article, they point out that the average person in the U.S. gives less than 2% to any kind of charitable cause. And just so you know, the average person in Canada gives even less. Based on their research, people who attend church, on average, do a little better than the national average. They give 2.5%. And the point of the article is simply this. If everyone in the church in North America were just to tithe or give 10% of their income to the Lord's work, there would be ample funds not only to accomplish the mission of the local church, but also to meet the spiritual and the practical living medical needs in the rest of the world. They say if people were just to tithe to their churches, the typical church donations would increase by four times, by 400%. Now, if they are right, and if we had four times more offerings come in to our church, do you realize what that would mean for our church. It would mean that we wouldn't have to shut down any of our present ministries and that what our critics are saying would actually become a reality in that only 25% of our budget would now be needed to do the ministry that God has called us to do as a church locally and around the world. And 75% of our budget would be available to combat poverty, disease, injustice, and to do even more of what we've already been doing around the world and in our community and across this nation. Now, the, the, the Ronsvel's research is already over a decade old, but at that time, they estimated that it would take around $100 billion to address the basic issue of world hunger and provide for basic health needs. And yet they point out if all the people in the churches of the U.S., this doesn't include Canadian churches, just the churches in the U.S. were to just to tithe, there would be an additional $156 billion available to combat world poverty per year. You see, friends, it's easy for people to point at the church and to say your priorities are all wrong. And as I said, I'll admit sometimes they're right about some of those things. But you see, at the end of the day, each of us need to ask ourselves, are my priorities right? Are my priorities in line with what God asks of me? Because if it was... then probably the priorities of the church would be where they need to be too. Because we are the church. Folks, as I said, I'm passionate about our vision and what we're doing, but how I wish we could do more, how I wish we could do much more. I've traveled enough to see the need in the world. I've talked to enough people to know that the needs and the opportunities to make a difference in the name of Jesus, they are limitless. If the research in this article is correct, then if we give God our best and we are faithful in our giving, we can meet the basic living needs of people and introduce thousands of people to Jesus Christ here and around the world. With God, it is possible. Now, I want you to be sure, I want to be sure that you understand that this little little talk here isn't, about giving more to our church this isn't one of those you know we're in real financial trouble we're in debt up to our eyeballs and you know if you don't give more we're, we're gonna have to close the doors no this is much deeper this is about being faithful to God this is about giving God your best This is something that you and me have to sort out with God ourselves. Having said that, I hope and pray that you believe in our vision and our mission as a church enough that in response to God's word, to us through Malachi, that all of us here will regularly get on our knees and pray for the ministry of our church, for the people of our church, that we'll roll up our sleeves and that we will keep our wallets open and jump into the mission that God has called us to. That we will stop being armchair critics. And I'm not saying you are, but if you are, that you'll stop that. And as we read in Hebrews 10.24, you'll spur one another on toward doing the things that God calls us to do toward being the church that God calls us to be. I mean, if you don't believe in the vision that God has called us to as a church, then you need to find a church that you do believe in, its vision, and can jump in with both feet and support it. My prayer would be that we can link arms with one another, put aside our philosophical differences, and get on with the work that God has called us to. Let me just say this as well. If God has used our time here in Malachi to challenge you to give cheerfully and regularly, and should our offerings begin to double or triple, as your senior pastor, I want you to know that I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that most of the dollars that come in over and above the ministries we're already devoted to, that those are going to be directed to the cause of Christ around the world, and to world poverty. I commit myself to that. Imagine, friends, the impact that we can make together by just being faithful in this matter of giving God our best. I can't wait for the day when I can say that 75, 80% of our offerings are being used to help the less fortunate and to impacting lives for Christ through churches across Canada and around the world but friends it starts with each of us saying lord i'm holding nothing back i'm giving you my best i'm giving you my all of this i am confident if we cheerfully and sacrificially give our best to god it will not god will use our faithfulness not only to bless us in ways we can only imagine but he will use it to transform us into the image of jesus and to transform our city and our world for God's glory. And the day will come when we come to the very end, we're going to look back and we're going to say, giving my best to the Lord, investing my time, my talent, and my money into His kingdom was worth it all. We're going to have no regrets because at that moment we're going to realize what most people don't seem to get until it's too late, and that is only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will last would you stand with me for closing prayer so are we okay still love each other I just want to tell you what I told the other services. It has been—it is an absolute privilege, joy—to be your senior pastor. I so appreciate you guys. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.